Section 4 of A Compendious History of English Literature and of the English Language, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Grant Hicks. A Compendious History of English Literature and of the English Language, Volume 1. By George L. Craik. Chapter 1, Part 4. Decay of the Earliest English Scholarship It should seem not to be altogether correct to attribute the decline and extinction of the earliest literary civilization of the Angles and Saxons wholly to the Danish invasions. The Northmen did not make their appearance till towards the close of the 8th century, nor did their ravages occasion any considerable public alarm till long after the commencement of the ninth. But for a whole century preceding this date, learning in England appears to have been falling into decay. Bede, who died in 735, exactly ninety-seven years before that landing of the Danes in the Isle of Sheppey, in the reign of Egbert, which was followed by incessant attacks of a similar kind until the fierce marauders at last won for themselves a settlement in the country, is the last name eminent for scholarship that occurs in this portion of the English annals. The historian William of Malmesbury, indeed, affirms that the death of Bede was fatal to learning in England, and especially to history insomuch that it may be said, he adds, writing in the early part of the twelfth century, that almost all knowledge of past events was buried in the same grave with him, and hath continued in that condition even to our times. There was not so much as one Englishman, Malmesbury declares, left behind Bede, who emulated the glory which he had acquired by his studies, imitated his example, or pursued the path to knowledge which he had pointed out. A few, indeed, of his successors were good men, and not unlearned, but they generally spent their lives in an inglorious silence, while the far greater number sunk into sloth and ignorance, until by degrees the love of learning was quite extinguished in this island for a long time. The devastations of the Danes completed what had probably been begun by the dissensions and confusion that attended the breaking up of the original political system established by the Angles and Saxons, and perhaps also by the natural decay of the national spirit among a race long habituated to a stirring and adventurous life, and now left in undisturbed ease and quiet before the spirit of a new and more intellectual activity had been sufficiently diffused among them. Nearly all the monasteries and the schools connected with them throughout the land were either actually laid in ashes by the northern invaders, or were deserted in the general terror and distraction occasioned by their attacks. When Alfred was a young man, about the middle of the ninth century, he could find no masters to instruct him in any of the higher branches of learning. There were at that time, according to his biographer Asser, few or none among the West Saxons who had any scholarship, or could so much as read with propriety and ease. The reading of the Latin language is probably what is here alluded to. Alfred has himself stated, in the preface to his translation of Gregory's Pastoral, that, though many of the English at his accession could read their native language well enough, the knowledge of the Latin tongue was so much decayed that there were very few to the south of the Humber who understood the common prayers of the church, or were capable of translating a single sentence of Latin into English. And to the south of the Thames he could not recollect that there was one possessed of this very moderate amount of learning. Contrasting this lamentable state of affairs with the better days that had gone before, he exclaims, I wish thee to know that it comes very often into my mind what wise men there were in England, both laymen and ecclesiastics, and how happy those times were to England. The sacred profession was diligent both to teach and to learn, Men from abroad sought wisdom and learning in this country, though we must now go out of it to obtain knowledge, if we should wish to have it. 
It was not until he was nearly forty years of age that Alfred himself commenced his study of the Latin language. Before this, however, and as soon as he had rescued his dominions from the hands of the Danes, and reduced these foreign disturbers to subjection, he had exerted himself with his characteristic activity in bringing about the restoration of letters as well as of peace and order. He had invited to his court all the most learned men he could discover anywhere in his native land, and had even brought over instructors for himself and his people from other countries. Werfrith, the Bishop of Worcester, Ethelstan and Werwolf, two Mercian priests, and Plegmund, also a Mercian, who afterwards became Archbishop of Canterbury, were some of the English of whose superior acquirements he thus took advantage. Asser he brought from the western extremity of Wales. Grimbald he obtained from France, having sent an embassy of bishops, presbyters, deacons, and religious laymen, bearing valuable presents to his ecclesiastical superior Fulco, the Archbishop of Reims, to ask permission for the great scholar to be allowed to come to reside in England. And so in other instances, like the bee looking everywhere for honey to quote the similitude of his biographer, this admirable prince sought abroad in all directions for the treasure which his own kingdom did not afford. His labors in translating the various works that have been mentioned above from the Latin, after he had acquired that language, he seems himself to have been half inclined to regard as to be justified only by the low state into which all learning had fallen among his countrymen in his time, and is likely perhaps to be rather of disservice than otherwise to the cause of real scholarship. Reflecting on the erudition which had existed in the country at a former period, and which had made those volumes in the learned languages useful that now lay unopened, I wondered greatly, he says in the preface to his translation of the Pastoral, that of those good wise men who were formerly in our nation, and who had all learned fully these books, none would translate any part into their own language. But I soon answered myself, and said, they never thought that men could be so reckless, and that learning would be so fallen. They intentionally omitted it, and wished that there should be more wisdom in the land by many languages being known. He then called to recollection, however, what benefit had been derived by all nations from the translation of the Greek and Hebrew scriptures, first into Latin, and then into the various modern tongues, and, therefore, he concludes, I think it better, if you think so, he is addressing Wolfsig, the Bishop of London, that we also translate some books the most necessary for all men to know, that we all may know them. And we may do this, with God's help, very easily, if we have peace, so that all the youth that are now in England, who are freemen, and possess sufficient wealth, may for a time apply to no other task, till they first well know how to read English. Let those learn Latin afterwards who will know more, and advance to a higher condition. In this wise and benevolent spirit he acted. The old writers seem to state that, besides the translations that have come down to us, he executed many others that are now lost. It is probable, although there is no sufficient authority for the statement, that Alfred re-established many of the old monastic and episcopal schools in the various parts of the kingdom. Asser expressly mentions that he founded a seminary for the sons of the nobility, to the support of which he devoted no less than an eighth part of his whole revenue. Hither even some noblemen repaired who had far outgrown their youth, but nevertheless had scarcely or not at all begun their acquaintance with books. In another place Asser speaks of this school, to which Alfred is stated to have sent his own son Ethelward, as being attended not only by the sons of almost all the nobility of the realm, but also by many of the inferior classes. It was provided with several masters. A notion that has been eagerly maintained by some antiquaries is that this seminary, instituted by Alfred, is to be considered as the foundation of the University of Oxford. Up to this time absolute illiteracy seems to have been common even among the highest classes of the English. 
We have just seen that when Alfred established his schools, they were as much needed for the nobility who had reached an advanced or mature age as for their children. And indeed, the scheme of instruction seems to have been intended from the first to embrace the former as well as the latter. For, according to Asser's account, every person of rank or substance, who either from age or want of capacity was unable to learn to read himself, was compelled to send to school either his son or a kinsman, or, if he had neither, a servant, that he might at least be read to by someone. The royal charters, instead of the names of the kings, sometimes exhibit their marks, used, as it is frankly explained, in consequence of their ignorance of letters. The measures begun by Alfred for effecting the literary civilization of his subjects were probably pursued under his successors, but the period of the next three quarters of a century, notwithstanding some short intervals of repose, was on the whole too troubled to admit of much attention being given to the carrying out of his plans, or even, it may be apprehended, the maintenance of what he had set up. Dunstan, indeed, during his administration, appears to have exerted himself with zeal in enforcing a higher standard of learning as well as of morals, or of asceticism, among the clergy. But the renewal of the Danish wars after the accession of Ethelred, and the state of misery and confusion in which the country was kept from this cause till its conquest by Canute nearly forty years after, must have again laid in ruins the greater part of its literary as well as ecclesiastical establishments. The concluding portion of the tenth century was thus probably a time of as deep intellectual darkness in England as it was throughout most of the rest of Europe. Under Canute, however, who was a wise as well as a powerful sovereign, the schools no doubt rose again and flourished. We have the testimony, so far as it is to be relied upon, of the history attributed to Ingulfus, which professes to be written immediately after the Norman conquest, and the boyhood of the author of which is made to coincide with the early part of the reign of the confessor, that at that time seminaries of the higher as well as of elementary learning existed in England. Ingulfus, according to this account, having been born in the city of London, was first sent to school at Westminster, and from Westminster he proceeded to Oxford, where he studied the Aristotelian philosophy and the rhetorical writings of Cicero. This is the earliest express mention of the University of Oxford, if a passage in Asser's work in which this name occurs be, as is generally supposed, spurious, and if the history passing under his name was really written by Ingulfus. The studies that were cultivated in those ages were few in number and of very limited scope. Alcuin, in a letter to his patron Charlemagne, has enumerated, in the fantastic rhetoric of the period, the subjects in which he instructed his pupils in the school of Saint-Martin at Paris. To some, says he, I administer the honey of the sacred writings. Others I try to inebriate with the wine of the ancient classics. I begin the nourishment of some with the apples of grammatical subtlety. I strive to illuminate many by the arrangement of the stars, as from the painted roof of a lofty palace. In plain language, his instructions embraced grammar, the Greek and Latin languages, astronomy, and theology. In the poem in which he gives an account of his own education at York, the same writer informs us that the studies there pursued comprehended, besides grammar, rhetoric, and poetry, the harmony of the sky, the labor of the sun and moon, the five zones, the seven wandering planets, the laws, risings, and settings of the stars, and the aerial motions of the sea, earthquakes, the nature of man, cattle, birds, and wild beasts with their various kinds and forms, and the sacred scriptures. This poem of Alcuin's is especially interesting for the account it gives us of the contents of the library collected by Archbishop Egbert at York, the benefit of which Alcuin had enjoyed in his early years, and which he seems to speak of in his letter to Charlemagne, already quoted, as far superior to any collection then existing in France. 
he proposes that some of his pupils should be sent to York to make copies of the manuscripts there for the Imperial Library at Tours. Among them, he says, were the works of Jerome, Hilary, Ambrose, Austin, Athanasius, Orosius, the Popes Gregory and Leo, Basil, Fulgentius, Cassiodorus, John Chrysostom, Athelmus, Bede, Victorinus, Boethius, the ancient historical writers, as he calls them, Pompeius, most probably Justin, the epitomizer of the lost Trogus Pompeius, and Pliny, Aristotle, Cicero, the later poets Sejulius and Juvencus, Alcuin himself, Clement, Prosper, Paulinus, Arator, Fortunatus, and Lactantius, writers of various kinds, evidently thus jumbled together to suit the exigencies of the verse. Virgil, Statius, Lucan, the author of the Ars Grammaticae, the grammarians and scholiasts Probus, Phocus, Donatus, Priscian, and Servius, Eutychius, Pompeius, probably Festus, and Comenianus. Besides, he adds many more whom it would be tedious to enumerate. This was certainly a very extraordinary amount of literary treasure to be amassed in one place and by one man, at a period when books were everywhere so scarce and necessarily bore so high a price. Towards the close of the seventh century, says Horton, in his dissertation on the introduction of learning into England, even in the papal library at Rome the number of books were so inconsiderable that Pope St. Martin requested Sanctimand, Bishop of Maastricht, if possible, to supply this defect from the remotest parts of Germany. In the year 855, Lupus, abbot of Ferrières in France, sent two of his monks to Pope Benedict III to beg a copy of Cicero de Oratore and Quintilian's Institutes, and some other books. For, says the abbot, although we have part of these books, yet there is no whole or complete copy of them in all France. Albert, abbot of Jean Bleur, who with incredible labor and immense expense had collected a hundred volumes on theological and fifty on profane subjects, imagined he had formed a splendid library. About the year 790, Charlemagne granted an unlimited right of hunting to the abbot and monks of Scythen for making their gloves and girdles of the skins of the deer they killed and covers for their books. We may imagine that these religionists were more fond of hunting than of reading. It is certain that they were obliged to hunt before they could read, and at least it is probable that under these circumstances and of such materials they did not manufacture many volumes. At the beginning of the 10th century books were so scarce in Spain that one and the same copy of the Bible, St. Jerome's Epistles, and some volumes of ecclesiastical offices and martyrologies often served several different monasteries. To these instances we may add what Bede relates in his History of the Abbots of Wearmouth, in which monastery Benedict Bishop, the founder, had, about the end of the 7th century, collected a considerable library at the cost not only of much money, but also of no little personal exertion, having made five journeys to Rome for the purchase of books, relics, and other furniture and decorations for the establishment. Bede records that Benedict sold one of his volumes, a work on cosmography, to his sovereign, Alfred of Northumberland, for eight hides of land. End of section 4